electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much, and welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Stocks, the surprisingly strong economy, and your money. We debate the road ahead for each with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Jason Snipe, Josh Brown, Jim Labenthal, Anastasia Amoroso. It's good to see all of you here at the desk. All right, let's check the markets. We've been kind of all over the place uh, already today. We're positive across the board except for the Russell, as you see here. Uh, barely so, though, as economic data comes in better than expected almost across the board, whether it was GDP, durables, jobless claims, new home sales. And it's one reason, Anastasia, why Deutsche Bank is still looking for this rally to continue. The idea that if there's going to be a recession, it's not coming for six months or so. They suggest that the S&P could get to 4,500. What do you think? Well, seems like a stretch. I think 4,200 is probably where I would be most comfortable saying we can get to. But look, I can't deny that there's been definitely some positive developments here. And the fact that the markets pretty much shook off the Microsoft development and the guidance and kind of the downbeat commentary tells you that the markets are not concerned about the next couple of quarters. They're not concerned about the slowdown. They're more optimistic about what the back half of the year looks like. And Scott, you know, there's reasons to be optimistic on the economy. We have had the slowdown because you don't want to invest when the PMI is running at 60. You want to invest when the PMIs are below 50, or in this case, 46. And by the way, the manufacturing PMI, the services PMI, they actually ticked up. So that's great news. We've got consumer confidence that's actually been picking up as well as inflation has been coming down. And that brings me to probably the biggest positive is that inflation has been coming down across the board. And if we're 50 basis points away from the end of the Fed rate hiking cycle, all of this is pretty good news for the economy. And the last thing I'll say, Scott, the markets have priced in a chunk of the slowdown. Mm -hmm. If you think earnings need to be down by 13% in a recessionary scenario, guess what? For 2023, they're down 10% already. So we're a long way there. Josh, does this feel to you like a market that still wants to move higher based on the kind of action that Anastasia was just mentioning, whether it's Microsoft and fighting its way back or some of the other action that we've seen too? Well, I think it's clearly wants to, wants to move higher, but let's keep in mind that can change on a dime. The market started off last year wanting to move higher. And then on January 3rd, it changed its mind. So I don't, I don't want us to extrapolate too much um, from what's been happening over the last week, but it's undeniable. This has been, I think, the best five-day stretch in, in maybe six months or, or five months. And when you have price action like this, no matter how bearish you are or no matter how cautious you want to be, you do have to stop and just ask yourself, what am I missing or what might go right? So two things. The first is the reopening of China has been very bullish for the commodity trade, the energy trade, obviously the casino stocks, LVS looks incredible. Like that, that's, that's one component of this. The second component is whatever you want to say about valuations, you absolutely must nod your head to the fact that 
our top 500 corporations here in the United States have just done an incredible job navigating the environment that we're in. Um, and, and every time we go through a, a, a quarterly earnings uh, season, we get a reminder of just how good these 500 companies are. The last thing I would mention, there was a really big rebalance that took place uh, for the S&P Dow Jones indices, which a lot of money is following these, these indices, like a trillion dollars plus. And some notable things took place because about a third of the index turned over. And here's one very extreme example. Energy went from being 1% to 8%, a much, much, much bigger weighting than where it was. A lot of the big tech that had driven the market for five years took a big step back. Some of the big tech giants are now even considered as value stocks based on the way they're categorized in these indices. Don't discount the impact of that because, again, so many allocation decisions are being made versus those benchmarks. Whether people want to admit it or not, that's the benchmark that they're chasing. So I think when you look at that, and then I know we're going to talk about energy in a little while, these companies, the, the biggest uh, energy companies, Exxon, <coughs> Chevron, Shell, Total Energies, BP, they're going to have a combined $200 billion in 2022 profit by the time we get through all of their Q4 earnings report. That is 50% higher than the previous record. And these are now, once again, monster stocks. ExxonMobil is hitting a new high right now. Mm -hmm. Stock is up 60% in the last year, 331% uh, off its COVID low from March of 2020. So these stocks matter a lot more now. A year ago, they were barely relevant, and it was all about Apple, Microsoft. It's not all about those names anymore. There are new names that are meaningful, and those companies fundamentally are in really good shape. Let's mention um, the fact that, you know, since you went there, Jason Snipe, Chevron, we might as well just call it out now as the best stock it has been throughout today's session in the Dow. They, they announced a massive buyback, dividend hike as well, $75 billion buyback. Um, you know, criticized in some corners, of course, in Washington, no, no big shock there. But it goes right to Josh's point. You are, are just sitting on a, a mountain of profits and free cash flow. Without a doubt, Scott. And I think, you know, as we talk about capital discipline, and I know I mentioned this before, I mean, what they have done, what these companies have done through the pandemic is, is amazing, to be honest with you. So $75 billion buyback, I mean, this is massive. I mean, they increased their dividend for the 36th consecutive year. It's up another 6%. The dividend yield is a little over 3%. Free cash flow yield of above 13%. And again, the supply-demand dynamics and, and imbalances still exist. So these companies um, are extremely profitable. There's, there's continued runway. They trade at a discount to the market. Uh, so I continue to like Chevron, the Exxons of the world, and just the energy space. That was my stock sector pick. Um, and, of course, it's run a lot over the last two years. But to Josh's point, you see the rebalancing. You see uh, the representation, the S&P now, you know, 8 percent, as, as he mentioned. I mean, that's, that's significant. And I continue to like this space. And I think there's runway here. Jimmy, I mean, follow the money. I mean, maybe it's just not any more complicated than that. And the money is in energy. I think that's exactly right, Scott. And, um, you know, ExxonMobil, it's not being talked about today. They did a buyback announcement mm -hmm. a month ago. A big 50, one too. 50 billion. Yeah. It's not as big as 75 billion, but still, still very big. big. 
These are the two twin giants in that space, and they are generating gobs of cash flow. So, yes, that is where you want to be. Um, I think you pointed this out, Scott, that there, this does create some political issues. It does. That just And it's already uh, coming up. Of course, but it doesn't stop them from doing the buybacks. It so, does not stop know, them from doing the buybacks. They look at it as noise, and it's sort of the new... Um, the new paradigm, I guess, for large energy companies and the way that they're looking to be more, quote unquote, friendly to their shareholders. Yeah. I, so I want to make a point that caught me by surprise. Did you know that ExxonMobil is not just at a 52 week high, but an all time high? I mean, this is, you know, I, everybody wants to go back to 2014, the last, you know, oil price spike, and everything got slaughtered after that. I mean, this is now at an all-time high. Mm-hmm. This looks like, you know, Tesla uh, uh, three months ago, six months ago. I don't want to get too carried away here. Um, wh- what I'm trying to say, though, at the same time is we've got to watch out for where the risks are. Now, gasoline futures have been creeping up the last few weeks. You know I'm thinking that inflation is coming down. That has me a little worried. i got to tell you that. Um, nothing's ever clear sailing but this is as clear as it looks. Still like energy? Still like energy. And look, I'm looking at the forward curves here. And with Brent in the 80s, this is a great place to be for any of these integrated. And we have not talked much about the China reopening just yet. And that's likely to be a very meaningful boost for energy as well. If China goes from buying five point or consuming 5.5 million barrels a day, you know, back above 16 million, that's a big deal. And I think that supports the energy stocks here for sure. I mean, it raises the question, Josh, of, you know, when you're trying to figure out which areas of the market are going to be the winners this year. Um, I think I think tech is the third best performing sector out of the S&P year to date. Um, so some of those underperformers last year have gotten out of the gates. Well, we're about a week away or so from big cap tech, obviously, aside from Microsoft, which already reported of really coming down with their Reports, NVIDIA gets a positive call today, reiterated out, outperform at Credit Suisse. So how do we think about what you just said and the charts we just looked at, the, the moves that a Chevron and an Exxon are doing, uh, and then how we should think about continuing to put money into tech and whether it's sustainable or a head fake? So let's go back to NVIDIA because this is an example that I frequently cite as the kind of company that I think has the future in a chokehold. I really, you know, I look, I sat through a huge drawdown in NVIDIA, and the stock is still down 40% from its high, but it's also up 75% from its low. And as a shareholder, I didn't flinch because I understood the fact that we could go through a given year where high multiple high growth stocks are out of favor, but that doesn't necessarily change what I think the intermediate to long-term uh, fundamentals would be and the demand and the, and the roadmap. So now I think like the technology story of 2023, and I wrote about this on the blog yesterday, is going to be AI. You're never going to hear the end of it. Every company, every large scale organization in America, in the world, are going to be sitting here planning their AI strategy. You can't do that. You cannot do that with linear processing. You absolutely can't. You're going to need the type of chips that NVIDIA makes, and they own it. Like, there are other players, but it's an NVIDIA story. So, like, that's an example where, yeah, I get it. Maybe uh, we still have more rate hikes, and maybe people aren't going to want to be overweight growth and blah, blah, blah. That's all well and good. But as as an investor in the individual company, you have to be able to look through that if you want to be involved in some of these longer-term uh, stories. So uh, I, I don't think that that's a blanket approval for let's pivot back to, um, you know, high multiple tech. 
I just think like there are very specific individual stories that it's worth getting to know. And so for me, NVDA is an example of that without wanting to just like go out and buy every chip stock. Mm -hmm. With you as well, uh, Jason Snipe too, right? You still own it. Yep. 100%. And to Josh's point, I mean, where they sit from an innovation perspective and how they could support new technologies, I mean, it's it's hard to ignore, right? And and, and to Josh's point, it's an expensive stock trading at 50 times. But, you know, when I I think about just the chips, period, I mean, they they were decimated last year. You know, NVIDIA, to Josh's point, was down significantly, along with a lot of other names. But the other, the other point that I would like to make is just inventory. We talked about inventory a lot last year. That won't always be the problem. I think they'll work that off as well, just like most of the names in this space. And I think by the end of the year, that will no longer be a problem. And I think that also will serve as a catalyst to the stock. How about tech? Uh, tech, and within tech, I do prefer semiconductors. I think kind of the old guard tech, which is a lot of the big tech names, I don't think they're going to have the same catalyst going forward. And it's interesting, again, to Josh's point, is that the cloud story has clearly been slowing. It is played out, not fully, but it's played out to a large extent during the pandemic. And now there's this handoff that's going on within tech from cloud to artificial intelligence. I mean, I couldn't agree more. There's a stat probably from Microsoft a few years ago or Google that said we analyze 1% of the data sphere that's out there today. 1%. So that leaves a whole lot of data to analyze and process and make useful. So I do absolutely agree that artificial intelligence is a story. You need GPUs for that. And by the way, if you looked at Microsoft earnings report, you maybe saw the slowdown in cloud, but you saw tremendous growth in artificial intelligence. So chips are very well positioned. And then from a macroeconomic perspective, I would say, you know, Scott, there is this big correlation between semiconductor demand and manufacturing PMIs. And as we started to see this huge slowdown in manufacturing PMIs, we're now starting to see a trough. I think that portends rather well for uh, for the chip space going forward. How should I, Jim, be thinking about what's going to happen next week with the metas and the apples and the amazons and the alphabets you know microsoft gives us a little bit of a scare in terms of you know their view of the enterprise but then you could say well you know other ceos even in the tech sphere are telling a little bit of a different story and then you have the resiliency of the microsoft itself which fights back off of the the depths after it looked like it might be a bad tell for tech and maybe now it's not so much that it wasn't as bad as maybe it initially seemed? I think Microsoft is telling you all you need to know. I mean, to answer your question, I don't think I don't think there's a reason to think that Microsoft is against the grain of everybody else. And what they're going to say is the overall aggregate demand environment is challenged, not disastrous, but challenged. Um, earnings growth is not going to be what it's been in the past. But we have to put this into perspective. The multiples on most of these stocks have come down mightily. Uh, and when we were talking about Microsoft the other day, I mean, one of the things I wanted to, I tried to make a point there is we, these are great companies. All right. We can argue about whether their multiples are one or two turns too high. But that's the discussion we're having, not whether they're 10 times too high. No, but we're trying to figure out how much their earnings are going to come down, right? Um, Refinitiv comes out and says the expected year-on-year drops for big tech this earnings season, Amazon down 87%, Meta 40, NVIDIA 38, Alphabet 22, Microsoft 7 and Apple 7 as well. And there it is on our wall here, the big earnings declines for big tech, right? We're trying to figure out if the valuations have re-rated enough 
to reflect the changing earnings power of these companies in this environment. And, and so my short answer to you is yes, but I want to also qualify it by saying that when we're talking about these declines in earnings power, I think we have to ask ourselves how long they will last. You know, Scott, and our viewers know that I think that this is a slowdown, not something worse, which means that they're going to recover their earnings growth, maybe not to the levels of two years ago, but they're going to start recovering them faster than maybe the market thinks. The other idea that, you know, Josh put forth is where rates are going to go as it relates to how these stocks have done so far, right? Rates were down. Mm -hmm. These stocks got a, a, a boost to start the year. What happens next week with the Fed? A wild card, obviously. Wolf Research today. Scott. Yeah, go ahead real quick. Uh, I was just going to say, it's not where rates are going to go. It's the volatility of rates. That's what's going to matter this year. We all understand, we all understand that, fi- you know, 5%, 5 and a quarter, like everyone is on the same page. It's what's great about the setup for this year is one of the hardest parts of 2022 was interest rate volatility. Well, of course, but that's why you're not going to have that this year. You're not at least going to have it according to I, re- I read you the note that Deutsche Bank put out that suggested we could have a really strong first half rally. Why? Because the recession not only is pushed off, but to your point, interest rate volatility is going to be lower. And that is going to be a really big deal for all of the reasons that you just said. The flip side of that, of course, is what I was trying to say with Wolf, that the markets are moving way ahead of the Fed and the data, right? So you're going to have a push-pull. Maybe you get less volatility in rates, but you're still in denial, Josh, about not you, but the people who are, who are trying to make a more bullish case are, are in denial about what's going to happen with the Fed and how intent they're going to be uh, in keeping inflation from resurging. Not the fact that it's falling. They're not stupid. They know inflation's falling just like the four of you on the show today do. But there's an underestimation, I think, among some about how resolute the Fed's going to be to try and keep it that way. Yeah. The, the, strongest, the strongest argument the bears have is the following setup. Um, we get to a place where, in, by the way, when we say inflation is falling, what we're talking about is the rate of inflation falling. Like the prices are not going back to 2019. I'm not saying, uh, right? You're probably not going to $10 eggs, but you're not going to $2 eggs either. So we're saying like, when we, when we talk about like inflation, we're just talking about the rate of change of inflation. And maybe you get some disinflation in some parts of the economy, but that's like the best you could hope for. Yeah. So that's why the Fed stays, stays tighter for longer. But the, the, the bare case is that the die is already cast. We have already um, tightened financial conditions to the point that it's, it's uh, inevitable that you're going to start seeing more charge-offs and, and more losses in the bond market and more losses in credit. And then the Fed, toward the end of this year, is going to be forced to start cutting, riding to the rescue, which then leads to a reacceleration in inflation. And we have to do this all over again like the 1970s. Well, right. That's the bear case. That, that's the wolf case. That, I mean, that's case. what that, the Michael Burrys of the world are that, worried about right now. That's the wolf case, which says the strong rally to start the year has left, Jim, and I'll pose this to you, has left financial conditions looser than they were when, when Powell delivered the hawkish uh, Jackson Hole speech. They call him a wild card. They sense his tone's going to be more hawkish. Why? Because of what Josh was just saying, trying to avoid this 1970s-style resurgence of inflation. 
understood completely. Um, my comment, which I've made in the past few weeks to you and to our viewers, Scott, is that uh, the Fed's getting exactly what it wants. Okay, It's getting the soft landing, which is what it wants. It doesn't want to crush the economy or the labor market just for the sake of crushing the economy and the labor but market. Does it, it wants want, to do that. It doesn't want financial down. conditions to loosen too much. So, and a rally in the equity market, anywhere even close to the degree of Deutsche Bank throwing out today, does more than that. That unless, does that. As Joe Terranova would say, it provokes the Fed. Taken, point taken, unless inflation comes down more rapidly than any of us expect. That's the simple unless clause that you have to put to that. Meaning, the Fed's getting what it wants. It may choose to snatch defeat out of the jaws of victory and go to 5.1%. What seems to me, just me, I'm not the Fed, more reasonable would say raise 25 basis points on February 1st and then simply say we're going to be data dependent. And if you put that tool of forward guidance, also known as job owning, back in the box, this market will rip. But I, I don't know if they're going to do that or not. I don't know. I, I agree, Jim, that I think the Fed is getting what it wants, and especially over the next three to six months. But I do worry that there is a risk uh, that's shaping up into next week, because if you look at market pricing, the 5% handle is not actually market pricing right now. We expect that we're going to get to 48 4.9%, and we're going to start cutting rates in the back half of the year. That, to me, seems to be very much disconnected with what the Fed has been telling us, because they said 5 and maybe north of 5 And Yes, commodity price inflation is coming down. Yes, there's actually outright goods deflation, which is happening on a month-over-month -month basis. But service inflation is still elevated. And I worry that that's what the Fed decides to focus on next week. And, Scott, to your point, just trying to tighten those financial conditions. Well, I would say to your point, jobless Jim, claims just Jobless claims just came in below. Yeah. I don't see the Fed getting – I don't – I see the Fed getting what it wants in, in, with respect to flat screen TVs and, and microwaves. I really don't see them getting what they want where it counts. You just had initial jobless claims come in below. Um, where the four-week average, I think, is now uh, back under 200,000. That doesn't give the Fed what it wants. And with respect to all of these layoffs in tech, uh, these people are not filing unemployment for like you know, 60 days. A lot of the big companies that are doing these layoffs have these programs where they help place people um, or, or, or the resources to give people a lot of severance before they start to collect. So there is a lag effect um, to what you would normally expect to see with the headline, the, the disconnect between the headline layoffs and when the actual data is going to show up that the Fed acts on. That's a bigger lag than normal when you're talking about giant tech and media companies. And the problem with that, again, the Fed does so much by looking in the rearview mirror um, that we could ha we could get a shock later on, but it's just not showing up yet. So I don't know that they're getting what they want to the degree uh, that they want it right now. Mm -hmm. And that's problematic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we're going to see. Uh, obviously, what happens next week. Straight ahead, our chart of the day. An earnings mover getting slammed today on soft guidance. We have ownership in the committee today. We'll give you that trade coming up next. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier. Because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit ODFL.com. Old Dominion. Helping the world keep promises. 
B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report. That is linkedin.com slash report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash report and get started. All right, chart of the day. Let's throw it up. It's right there. Sherwin-Williams. It's off its worst levels, but still, it's a bad day. It's down 7%. Mixed quarter, the CEO saying they're not immune to the challenging demand environment in 2023. Uh, Jim, you own it. And what's uh, newsy today for you is you're trimming it. I've got to. I've got to. Scott, you know me. You know that one of the biggest signals I take from the market is what CEO is telling me. The CEO, God bless him. I mean, there's a straight shooter and this management team is top notch. I'm telling you, this is why I'm in a foul mood about this. This is a great company with a great management team, but I've got to start selling it today based on what they're telling me. I can I can talk about potential green shoots in the housing market with mortgage applications. They're telling me it ain't going to hit them in a positive way anytime soon. Well, you're so, so bullish on the I, I, I just it's interesting to me. You're, you're so bullish on the economy relative to where most others are, and yet you're selling down this stock today based on concerns about the economy. I don't get it. Yeah, well, look, I mean, I did give you a clue, though, right there, is that there are some green shoots starting to show up in the housing market. And that has a lot to do with that the 30-year 30 mortgage, 30 mortgage is down over 100 basis points from its high. I'm not selling Home Depot, by the way, but the, just, the simple fact is housing. Why not? Because I don't want to get out of the whole sector because I am positive on the economy. And what I'm just saying about that there are green shoots in the housing markets. The problem is it's going to take a long time to develop. So is this the space where I want to have the weight today that I had yesterday? Not with the news I got today. The no. sell, the, 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 the trimming, it surprises me. If you would have said I'm buying more on this stock's not going anywhere. huge decline today, stock's I would have said, not, OK, that's I mean, your thesis. I mean, I think you're going to agree with me. This stock's not going anywhere for a while. I mean, just tell me, I, I can't come up with a reason why it's going to go anywhere. It might flatline here. I just can't come up with why it's going anywhere anytime soon. What about Home Depot and Lowe's, Jason Snipe? I think you own both. I do. <clears throat> and I think for me, as it relates to kind of the housing adjacent names in, in HD and Lowe's, you know, I think there's some seasonality tailwinds. I think mortgage applications will continue to increase. We saw uh, some, some positive housing numbers this morning, you know, new home sales up. So I, I, I do think these names could work. And, and to Jimmy's point, I mean, mortgage rates have started to come down some. So I think there's some activity and there's just a structural, again, demand, supply, demand issue in housing. So I think prices will remain elevated as well. Josh, what do you do here with, with these names? And I'm, I'm curious as to what's your take on on what Jimmy's doing here with Sherwin? Uh, well, I don't disapprove of what Jimmy's doing because uh, his time frame is, is his time frame. But broadly speaking, these stocks, I think, uh, suffer a little bit from the same thing that the, quote, work from home stocks suffer from, which is they, they had an incredible pull forward in demand. Don't even worry about the statistics themselves. Just think about in your own real life 
How many people do you know that didn't do renovation or redecorating work in their house over the last three years? Everyone you know did something, yourself included, and it became the national pastime. We were all trapped. We were all looking at our same four walls and saying, this place is a dump. I got to do something to, to nicen it up. And, and listen, it's perfectly normal. That doesn't go on forever. It's the same, it's the same thing with, with Best Buy. It's like, you know, yes, everyone bought a dishwasher. That's mm -hmm. great. They're going to mm -hmm. buy another one next year. So that's okay. If you're a long-term shareholder in Sherwin-Williams, you understand that there are moments when you've got this uh, peak cyclical behavior in housing um, or in nesting or whatever. And you either ride it out or you choose not to. So maybe Jimmy's making a smart sale here. Well, let me ask you I this, though, criticize. Josh. I'm looking at, at HD. That's what I was typing in as, as you were talking. I'm looking at my, my screen. Same it's thing. Like, it's like trapped right in the middle of, you know, the 52-week low and the 52-week high. Are, are, you, are, you, are you suggesting yeah. that those types of stocks need, need a re-rating because of that? It doesn't matter if it needs one. It already had one. Go, go look at a three-year chart. I'm suggesting it's a further one. A further one. <laughs> Yeah, but it's 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 possible. You know, a lot of us here on the desk have a history that goes back to post 9/11. And I don't know if a lot of people remember this, but in uh 02, 03, 04, there was this nesting trend that was hot in the stock market where all of the companies that were home related uh were like the only bull market in sight for a while. And that came and went. Like it had its moment and then it was over. And this is no different. Post 9-11, uh, interest rates were, were cut to zero. The housing market started to heat up. We know how it ended. Um, but all of a sudden, everybody was very interested in being at Home Depot every weekend. Yeah. And it was an amazing period of time. And it, you know, Buffett was investing in carpeting companies and aluminum siding. And it was a moment. And moments pass. I think we are past the moment of people spending a lot of money on goods uh, or, or renovation. Mm -hmm. And these stocks will take a breather. Home Depot, probably one of the best 50 managed companies on planet Earth. So if, if you want to be a long-term shareholder here and you can accept the fact that 2021, 2022 are over and you might just have to ride out uh, the lower comps, then you should. And if you don't want to do that and you want to pivot to where you think there's going to be a better year, you could do that also. I think a lot of what we're talking about here is what is your time frame as a shareholder? Okay. Um, Anastasia, I'm looking at Blackstone yep. uh, today. It's up three and a half percent. You wanted to address PE, private equity. Well, I did, because clearly last year was a slowdown in private equity fundraising, a slowdown in real estate financing. But if you think about from the investor perspective, if we look at 2023, after a massive reset that we've seen in valuations in public and private markets, we see this as a year of opportunity, the year where you want to be committing. And Scott, if you look at when investors should allocate to private equity, it's in the downturn year of vintages. So if you look at you know the correction from 2015, 2016, or 20, 2008, 2009, those years vintages ended up having the best and uh, net IRRs. So that's how I would think about private equity now. In short, it acts with a lag. But given how much cash there's still on the corporate balance sheets, some of which may want to deploy that in M&A, given how much dry powder there still is in the private equity space, I think even if the IPO market remains shut, there will be exit opportunities for a lot of these companies. And I suspect in the next few quarters, Scott, we'll see a pretty, you know, a more complete reset in private market valuations and companies like these private equity managers will be able to take advantage of it. You want to give me something quick on Alaska? I'll make it really uh, quick. Which, okay. which you own. And uh, it's it's flat to down yeah. uh, today. They missed. 
I, actually, I should be feeling good about things because of Alaska. Sherwin's weighing on me, but that's okay. Alaska tripled its uh, earnings per share uh, year over year. I mean, I'm not going to complain that they missed by a penny, so they're up 200% instead of 201%. I listened to the beginning of the conference call. It was a half hour before our show, and, and demand seems strong, although they, are, they do have a little bit of an issue uh, with their West Coast market, and that's where a lot of those layoffs are, but they're still guiding for 9 to 10% uh, revenue growth, so things look pretty good there. Where's the stock going, though, right? It's at 50 it's, bucks again, high 61 low 38, 52-week range. This has been a ceiling for it for about a year and a half. I mean, and look, I'm happy it's up 19% year to date. This is still a referendum. This whole sector is a referendum on a recession. No recession, it goes higher. Recession, this is the ceiling and it goes lower. All right, up next, got an upgrade for Las Vegas Sands. Shares trading at levels not seen since June of 2021 and surging more than 60% in just three months. The casino trade is next in our call of the day. We're back after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to The Half. I'm Bertha Coombs, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. President Biden is considering a visit to Europe next month to mark the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Multiple locations are under consideration, including Poland, sources telling NBC News. The goal of the visit is to draw attention to Ukraine's resilience against Russia's military campaign and to reaffirm U.S. solidarity with the Ukrainian people. Representative Adam Schiff announcing he's running for Senate in 2024. It's expected to be a crowded Democratic primary race for the seat held by Senator Dianne Feinstein. Feinstein, who is 89 years old, has not announced her plans, but already three prominent California Democrats have set their sights on replacing her. Schiff and representatives Katie Porter and Barbara Lee. The mayor of Cincinnati presented the key to the city today to the medical team at UC Medical Center, which provided care for Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin after he suffered cardiac arrest on the field during a game against the Bengals. Medical personnel administered CPR and restarted Hamlin's heart on the field. Hamlin spent nearly a week in the intensive care unit at the Cincinnati Hospital before returning to Buffalo, and it was great to see him during the playoffs, even if it was a losing thing for yeah, Buffalo. Yeah. Okay, Bertha. Thank you, Bertha Coombs. All right, Las Vegas Sands. Start call of the day. Why upgraded today at CBRE? The price target goes to 68 from 47. Shares are up nearly 60% in the past three months. Macau is a big story there. Contessa Brewer knows this story better than most, and that's why she is sitting here as well. So the, the earnings weren't great, right? They, they, were, they, they missed, right? Yeah, they missed on top and on bottom. On top line. and bottom. Who cares? Yeah, obviously, obviously who cares? You have never heard, you've never seen an earnings report that probably matters less than what we heard from Las Vegas Sands. It was the call. The management got on the call. They were so enthusiastic. Mm. And, and John Decree at CBRE says, look, 
There is no company that is better positioned to wave the green flag in Macau than Las Vegas Sands. They outperformed on revenue. They said the first three days or so of the Chinese New Year, they outperformed, way outperformed visitation. And visitation was up 217 percent over last year, still low compared to 2019 levels, down 40 percent. But they said the premium customers coming in and spending, they reported the same thing in Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. This was at one point the most lucrative casino property in the world. Now they've taken a bunch of rooms off of line and they still matched pretty much 2019 room revenue levels Mm -hmm. because they've got people coming in and spending more on these rooms than they've ever spent before in uh, Macau. Wages and and uh, workforce is a big problem there, big headwind. They've had yep. to take more than 2,000 rooms offline. Doesn't matter. They're full steam ahead. How many price target bumps did you get today in LVS? Well, a uh, lot, right? Eight. I think there was eight raises to the price target. John Decree went from a hold to a buy at CBRE. Carlos Santorelli says he has visions of a higher high. That's Deutsche Bank's analyst. I think that as a group, what they see is even though there's been this huge run up in the stock in the last three months, yeah. there's more room to run as people start showing the pent-up demand for Macau. No question. Now, now Jason Stipe, given all that Contessa just said and what the CEO of LVS had to say, which was you know, overwhelmingly bullish, it appears, why are you looking at trimming MGM, which you own? Yeah, so a lot of the casino stocks have run a ton. I mean, MGM's up over 34% in the last six months, up 20% year-to-date. This is, this is a Macau story, a China reopening story. For me, it, it's, it's under review because I think, you know, as discretionary spending continues to slow going into the later half of this year, you know, I, I, I don't see a ton of runway going forward. So it's under review for us. We've, we've held it's been a long term holding. You know, there's it's obviously a lot of cyclicality there. You know, so we're, we're looking to potentially trim it in the next couple of quarters. Jimmy, you got Wynn Resorts. It's, it's up ch- 70. <clears throat> it's up 77 uh, percent in three months. Why bother owning an airline when you can get the bang out of this, out of a casino stock? Well, I think one would criticize me rightly by saying those two are, are correlated pretty tightly Well, you've together. made the correlation that it all comes down to a recession. Well, doesn't this? Yes, But these it stocks does. have done unbelievably yep. better than airline stocks. It's just China. Uh, well, uh, so, I, I mean, we can go to Josh because the answer to your question is, yes, this is a recession call as well. What I'll point out <laughs> is that this is also Las Vegas. And at, I think in the next couple of days, we'll get the update from Las Vegas visitors and convention authority on how December looked. I, it comes out at the end of the month with a month, one month lag. But I'm, I'm waiting for that. I want to see how Las Vegas looks. I just want to point out that on MGM, they saw that run up in the stock because of how they were doing domestically and sports betting and all the enthusiasm. Mm-hmm. It was worth a quarter of their profits pre-pandemic. So if you add another quarter profit coming back online, what's that going to mean for MGM? For, for when the same thing, they've been able to show some real growth domestically. What happens now when they're, I mean, before it was three quarters of their profit margins. What happens when that comes back online? Well, thank you. That's Contessa Brewer following Las Vegas Sands and the other casinos today. Again, it's our uh, call of the day. Coming up, big earnings to watch tonight in overtime. We'll find out how the committee is positioning ahead of those results next. Big earnings coming up in overtime. We're going to kick it off. Visa, Jimmy, Mastercard was good. 
was good. Visa going to be good? I think it is. Um, it's been a good stock, by the way. I don't think we talk about it enough. It has been a good stock. One of the reasons it's been a good stock is the resumption and the increase in international travel. They do make a lot on cross-currency transactions. Um, but look, I mean, every indication is that uh, we've got employment strong and people are going to consume when employment is strong. So I see good things ahead for Visa. I mean, Oppenheimer raised the price target to 237 uh, from 210, you mentioned how the stock is done. It is up 8% year to date. And I have to point out, it's kind of a pricey stock. I mean, I look at this and it's not cheap, but you don't always want to own cheap stocks. Sometimes stocks are expensive for a reason. This is a quality company. Jay Snipe, what about American Express? Since we're talking cards and it's tomorrow morning, you own that one. City raises the price target there to 133 yeah. from 128. 100%. So, you know, it's always interesting to see, you know, these sell calls and then a, and a price increase on, on, on estimates. So for me, as it relates to AXP, I think their credit quality is strong. Their consumer base is strong. They cater to the high-end consumer. I think on a relative basis, their charge-offs and delinquencies will be lower uh, against their peers. And, they, and, I, and I expect, and Jimmy just said this, I mean, cross-border travel, I think there's still pent-up demand there. They play in that space, and I think they will be rewarded. Okay. Intel. All right, Jimmy, you're taking this one because you used to own the stock. I feel so. All right? and now I you, feel good. You talk all the time about <laughs> the CapEx that this company is doing, and yet you don't own the stock anymore. No one on the show today does. It's expected to post a loss. They've lost market share, blah, 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 blah. Everybody knows the story. I mean, I'm a stock picker. But, chips, stock have been, but chips have been a place to be. Yeah. It's, this stock's up 11.5% year to date. Good. I'm over. Uh, good. Look, I don't want to wish ill on it. And, you know, some of our friends. Why would Jenny's, you wish ill on it? You own Qualcomm. I mean, you need stocks like this to do well for your overall thesis, don't you? Yes, you do. But Intel has some specific issues that it's been going through for quite some time. Some very specific operational issues that have put them behind AMD. I hope they make it out of it. I'd like them to have a fabulous quarter, obviously. But, you know, it's been three years since I've sold it. And I've been a heck of a lot happier not owning it. A heck of a lot. All right. Well, I hope you'll be watching over time. We'll see what happens when those numbers hit uh, just after the bell uh, in the OT. All right. Up next is Santoli. He joins us with his midday word. And we are getting ready, as always, to grade your trades. You can email us, askhalftime at CNBC.com. Of course, you can tweet us as well, the hashtag GradeMyTrade. We're right back. Santoli, there he is at the New York Stock Exchange for our midday word. I guess, look, the data's good and it remains good and, and for the yep. most part. And maybe, just maybe, the runway is a little bit longer than we thought and expected, not only for stocks, but for the Fed to get the plane on the ground. Yeah, that's the takeaway. Now, the, the numbers for GDP weren't so good that it caused the market to really reprice what the Fed's going to do. You could poke holes in. Uh, a lot of it was inventories. A lot of it was the sort of non-core areas. And we can decelerate from here. So in a sense, uh, it fit both agendas, both those people saying, look, it's delicate here. We could fall away any time. And those saying we came into the year with decent enough momentum. Look at the stock market message. Keep pointing out. Consumer finance doing well. Consumer discretionary outperforming over the last six months. Machinery, steel stocks. There are enough pockets of cyclical strength to say that things seem to be holding together. And I think the other side of it is I don't think you have to have mega cap growth do anything on a leadership basis. But unlike last year, you just have to have it not lean on the index every single day. And I think we're in that point. If last year was about resetting expectations and valuations in growth as we absorbed the rate hikes and potentially mm -hmm. uh, a slowing economy, 
a lot of that is here. You know, I mentioned at the very top of our show this bullish note from Deutsche Bank, which says this rally can go on. They even throw out 4,500. Not to have you opine on whether you think that's yeah. realistic or not, but one of the key principles in there is this, as Josh talked about too, lower rate volatility, right? Not this yep. craziness in the bond market. Absolutely. I was pointing that out in the fall, that that was really the thing that had kept stocks back on their heels. You really have come in. Now, it's basically uh, bond vol peaked when Fed hawkishness peaked. Once the market felt like they had a fix on the terminal rate for the Fed, that's when bond volatility fell away and the long end started to become more stable. So that's where we are. I think that is a help. Whether we get another 10 percent out of stocks on that alone or uh, the, the economy holding together, Totally unclear. I do think it's important to say there's a way of looking at what's going on and say, hey, we used up a lot of good news just to get the S&P back to that very familiar ceiling that we bumped up on a few times. So let's see if it proves that a lot of the bull market uh, behavior that's being hinted at carries through. We're going to have to wait till next week. And I can't I mean, next week's yeah. going to be just so massive with tech earnings and Powell. Uh, we'll see. I'll see you uh, in a few down at the stock right. exchange. That's Mike Santoli. Back with me, of course, in overtime for his last word. Grade My Trade is up next. Send an email still. Ask Halftime at CNBC.com. Tweet us. We're right back. All right. Grade My Trade. It is up. Jason Snipe, you're up first. Steven bought Netflix at 223. Should I sell Amazon, which I have at 147, and buy more Netflix? What do you think? So I would say yes, you know, as, as it relates to Netflix, Netflix obviously had a strong quarter on the, on the sub-editions. I think there's an opportunity for them to really monetize its password reshare. I think there's some deceleration in earnings growth for Amazon. I, I, would, I would make a play here for, the, for Netflix, even though it's, it's run a lot already this year. I give it a solid B here. All right. Josh, to you, uh, Zach B. in Charlestown, West Virginia, says he is a very big fan of yours. Says he also bought Verizon at 35. He says it's a long-term hold, getting paid to wait to dividend yield, obviously six and a half percent. You previously owned it. What do you think about this? Yeah, well, it seems like he bought it right. This is a stock that uh, basically has a has a, a double top at 60. That double top dates back to the year 2000, uh, and then once again uh, early in the pandemic, and it hasn't been anywhere near there ever since. But a lot of the return you're going to get here is from the dividend yield, which is 6.5% currently. So if you think about it like a total return, you don't need that much in the way of stock price appreciation. Sit back, collect that dividend. I think for right now it's safe. Uh, and if you get you know, any kind of momentum in the share price at some point, that's just gravy. All right. Jimmy, to you uh, from a Twitter user, Zach1974, bought Boeing at 128. What should I do? Well, you should hold it, but A-plus on that price. I mean, good for you. Nobody wanted to buy it there. Uh, look, this is about execution right now. You got the earnings report yesterday. Execution means delivering planes. That creates free cash flow. I think management's doing a very good job now of executing on deliveries, working with the supply chain, getting engines, and building planes. All right, Anastasia, Mike on Twitter uh, wants to know about the VIX. I bought VIX 22 calls expiring post-Fed in February as a hedge. What do you think? I like it a lot. I think it's very timely. The last time VIX was at 19 was in August and April before that. And this is a big event risk that we're heading into next week with the Fed. And there's a market disconnect. So I like it. All righty. Thanks for the trades. And thanks for the grades. Final trades are next. We're going to be busy in overtime. Four o'clock Eastern. Intel. Visa. 
Those are going to be the key earnings. Stacey Raskin, top chip analyst, going to react right immediately to Intel. Chris Toomey, Morgan Stanley, Private Wealth, Kevin Gordon of Schwab, Shannon Sakosha, Malcolm Etheridge. I'll see all of you in a few hours' time, I hope. Final trades, Anastasia. You're up first. SMH Semiconductors, I think, is going to be a beneficiary of slowing inflation and secular trends that will persist. All right. Jason Snipe. CVX, monstrous of a, of a buyback here and a fortress of a balance sheet. Stay long. All right. Josh Brown, what do you have for us? Carlisle bouncing after that Blackstone report. I think CG is too cheap. All right. Thank you. And Farmer Jim, last but not least. Thank you. I'm with Anastasia on the chips. Qualcomm. Qualcomm's my favorite. Oh, okay. Well, we will see what Intel has we to will say. I look forward to it. In overtime, of course. Uh, that uh, One of two big earnings reports after the bell. I will see you then. Does it for us. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.